Good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are calloused and unfeeling, but mm -hmm. I delight in your law. Yes. It is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Good. Thousands. Thousands. Okay, what do we got? Today is the, anybody? Ninth. 9th of November. Let's see what we have here. The cost of discipleship. Berlin's leading physicist and neurologist, Karl Bonhoeffer, expected his son to take up a respectable profession such as science or the law. Instead, young Dietrich declared he wanted to be a theologian. When his family pointed out flaws in the German church, he replied, in that case, I'll reform it. He tried, but he came, he came of age during the days of Adolf Hitler, who, was duped, uh, who had duped most German churchmen. It is because of Hitler that Christ has become effective among us, said one minister. National socialism is positively, I'm sorry, positive Christianity in action. Bonhoeffer, opposing the Nazis with all his might, called the church to repentance. His outspokenness put him at risk. Every day, every year, the church, I'm sorry, the crisis grew and the tension deepened. What On, did he mean by repentance? Uh, that means change your mind. There we go. On Kristallnacht, which is Crystal Night, November 9th, 1938, the Nazis unleashed their full fury against Jewish communities in Germany. Windows were shattered, houses stormed, synagogues burned, families brutalized, Jews imprisoned. Bonhoeffer, away from Berlin, raced back to the capital and stood like an intrepid prophet against the violence. He was furious with Christians who justified the violence by saying the Jews were reaping only what they deserved as the crucifiers of Christ. He marked the calamitous date alongside Psalm 74, 7 through 8, which he underlined in his Bible. He was eventually incarcerated at Telgel Prison outside Berlin. His six-by-nine-foot cell contained Yes, contained cot, shelf, stool, and bucket. Here he lived 18 months writing letters and poems. Some of them were addressed to Maria von Wedemeyer, his fiancée. They never married, and the letters he wrote to her were at Harvard University, sealed at her request until the year 2002. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was taken to Flossenburg Concentration Camp. As he led a small workshop service on April 8, 1945, the Gestapo burst in and dragged him away. He cried, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Shortly after five o'clock the next morning, he was taken to an execution site in, grove, in a grove of trees and forced to strip. He knelt naked and prayed and then ascended the gallows to God. Psalm 74, they burned down your temple and badly disgraced it. They said to themselves, we'll crush them. Then they burned every one of your meeting places all over the country. That sounds exactly like the left in our nation today. Yes, exactly. Are. And, you know, they're saying, well, it's Christian uh, nationalism is what's causing the trouble in America. It, it's projection. Mm -hmm. They are the ones that are doing everything we're seeing right here. Right. It just, it's unbelievable how history repeats itself in nation after nation. Yep. Unbelievable. Um, uh, did you ever remember the name of that pink hotel, Miss Garrett? I didn't look it up. The Don Cesar. It is 
the Don Cesar. My mother and I were driving to uh, uh, the airport to drop Hidako off last Saturday, and uh, we that big pink hotel that's been, it was the only thing on Siesta Beach, I'm sorry, uh, St. Petersburg Beach, yeah, right. that you, the only thing out there for years and years and years, and both of us are having this mental block as to what it was, and it was right at the end of my head. She's looking it up, and she's got some name that had nothing to do with it. I said, that is not it. Don Cesar. Anyway. Uh, and they still call that that? Oh, yeah. Today? Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's still what they call it, but that's the name of it when it, forever. Right. And so, uh, anyway, and she obviously knows that because her face lit up. But uh, uh, she walked in. I didn't want to forget that. I've been waiting to... Uh, uh, so if you ever go to St. Petersburg Beach, if you're visiting uh, this area and go to St. Petersburg Beach, there's this giant pink hotel. And uh, like I said, it was the only thing out there, only thing out there. And now it's, you know, everything is built around it. But they didn't want to send the, uh, spend the expenses necessary to keep the foundation from cracking by dropping in a bunch of pylons. What they do here in Florida when you live on the beach or on sand is they drive p concrete pylons directly into the sand, deep, deep, deep down in, like they did with Rick's house. And uh, there's a certain number of pylons per square foot or per meter or whatever. And uh, it was too expensive because this is a giant building. So uh, the uh, uh, architects designed what is called an inverse pyramid. And they took these inverse pyramids and they put them down there and that put, they've never had a problem mm. ever in that. And it was built back, I think, in the 20s. So a uh, very unusual building, but the, uh, the uh, structure worked and uh, there but it stands to, to this day. What's that? You don't have to go to the sea. Just go over the Oh, yeah, the just go over the bridge, the Sunshine is. Skyway Bridge. And that's the big thing out there. There's this big pink, pink hotel. But anyway, um, has nothing to do with two Thessalonians. But um, let's see here. We've got... Uh, Pyong in the Philippines. She's a young girl that got raped and uh, she uh, needs $185 for a court matter concerning her rape. And if anybody can pick that up, let me know and I will get that to her right away. Um, uh, that's Pyong in the Philippines. Uh, it, it just is going to be a while before this matter is corrected, but she wants to see it through. Um, let's see here. I need to get something right now. Um, I'll do that right now so I don't forget. And then um, uh, Daniel's mother, the guy that does the daily commentary from the UK, his mother has two leaky heart valves. And so uh, keep her in prayer, please. Uh, Mike thinks he may have another hernia. Poor guy. He's got all kinds of physical problems, and now he's going, going through possibly another hernia. Um, and then Don and Jody are not here. Uh, I think it's only Don at this point, but he got sick the same day I got sick, which was, I don't know if you noticed, the last 20 minutes or 10 minutes of the sermon, I was done. I was completely out. I said, there's something wrong with me. And I got home and I finished the next six hours of work. And by the time I shut off the computer, I was so sick. And I was sick all the way through yesterday. And this morning I'm feeling a little better. But if we don't make it for a full hour, I'm sorry. I know uh, Lee up in Maryland, he... Uh, uh, has to travel, I think it's an hour and a half every week just to get to his cell phone so he can watch us online. So he, he may have spent a lot of time for a short Bible study today, but that was a joke. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, Don is still sick, and I don't think Jody got it or she's better already. I can't remember which, cause, uh, but keep them in prayer. And then Ray and Jess Willett are flying right now back to uh, Papua New Guinea. 
So keep them in prayer. They've got another couple of years before they get back here, and we want to pray for safety and for just a lot of success. Hopefully they'll be going to their own mission field very soon instead of taking care of the entire uh, uh, mission organization the way they have. And if so, then they're going to be getting established on a remote island with a group of people that needs desperately to hear about Jesus. So anyway, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, just share in your goodness. And we certainly lift up these people that were mentioned and we ask that you bless them and give them health in their bodies and happiness in their hearts and safety in their uh, journeys. And uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that we can come to you and we know you hear our prayers and you respond according to your wisdom, but you do factor our prayers in and we're thankful for that. Uh, we pray that uh, this class will be handled properly and that your word will be uh, glorified and we thank you for it. What a precious word that tells us of Jesus. And we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we have, uh, what? Oh, yeah, we have, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Prayers, uh, Ray and Jess. I'll read you something. Talking about the Bible. I won't say who sent this, but somebody sent this to me this morning. And it is well worth reading to get you in the mood for um, uh, Bible class. Yay. Um, let's see here. Um, this came in this morning. I will not tell you who said, sent this, and I'm going to skip. I'm just going to read little blurbs, and I've actually included in today's commentary, which will come out in two weeks because it's so wonderful. Um, I sit on my couch, and I just read Galatians. Now, this is somebody that is in the church. They could be online. They could be here in the church. That's I'm not telling you who it is. I'm just saying that... Uh, uh, this is a person that sent me this that attends the church. Um, no one read anything that would give anything away of who it is, but uh, today the scriptures have come alive in me like never before. Uh, Jehovah has shown me truth and his spirit. Holy Spirit has opened my eyes. I understand belief, faith, and grace like never before. And I won't say that because I don't give that away. I'm just so happy that I wanted to share it because I truly feel free today in my spirit. And I understand why Christ had to come to die. This is just from reading the book of Galatians today. Um, I always before had the head knowledge, but now I have written it on my heart. I just wanted to share my testimony with you. Uh, your constant encouragement to read the scriptures have come alive in my heart today. Okay, that's all I can read without giving anything I shouldn't give away, but um, uh, read your Bible. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you read your Bible. You can listen to sermons all day long by 10,000 different theologians. You can uh, listen to commentaries. You can do all these things, and unless you read the Bible, it's not going to speak to you personally. So please read your Bible in addition to whatever you do as far as sermons and studies and things like that. We're in 2 Thessalonians 2... Verse 12. There we go. So let's go back to the beginning of the paragraph, previous page. Do not, oh, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displays 
of Satan displays in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, 12, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Okay, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Right out of the headlines. Oh, yes, it really is. It's like reading today's paper. Um, I saw a couple things today that are so... So unbelievable. I can't believe it. I, I just can't believe where we're heading and how quickly we're heading. I can't believe it. Anyway, um, 2.12 is where we're at. So let me get rid of this. There we are. Oh, one more thing before I uh, give the comment on that verse. Is that uh, Tangerine is fine. Um, she had to have a C-section to have her baby delivered last um, Saturday. And then Hidako flew up and she was with her just an hour or two later. So it's probably actually better that she wasn't in the uh, mm -hmm. delivery room watching her get cut open. But um, uh, they have been in the hospital constantly. Hidako has not left the hospital since she arrived in New York. And it should be that Tanji will be leaving the hospital today. I don't know if they left yet or not, but she's had very high blood pressure, uh, which is a symptom of the preeclampsia. And uh, they got that under control today. And so they said, you're probably gonna leave, but I haven't heard that they've left yet. And um, uh, so there you go. That's just the status with Tanji and the baby. And uh, then I got this in the mail today. It says, uh, <laughs> first time, time grandpa. grandpa. Established, established 2023. Okay. <clears throat> that is referring to God sends them a strong delusion of verse 11. As noted in the previous verse, the strong delusion, or literally the working of error, will be begun by God, but it will be responded to by the people in a way where they carry the blame for their actions. Just like Pharaoh, he'll never be able to stand against God and say, well, you hardened my heart. Your word says you hardened my heart, and therefore, no, you actually are the one that hardened your heart. I was passively behind it, but you actively did it. And so that's the way it is. And uh, I'll actually talk about that at the beginning of the sermon coming up on Sunday why Israel is to blame for their actions is because they do things that are uh, testing God and when God doesn't respond by destroying them or causing something, then they just test him a little further. And it's just the way that people do in the world today. We just wanna keep pushing a little farther, see what we can get away with and God didn't respond, so let's just go a little further. That's what's going on here, okay? They will not be able to blame God when judgment comes upon them. God is not purposefully sending people to hell. The Bible says that explicitly, and that's just the way it is. We misinterpret these things, and it's something you quite often will find. You will uh, find people uh, talking about things like that, and they will say, you know, uh, well, I don't believe in a God that would send anybody to hell, and I, you know, total error in thinking, complete and total error in thinking, um, that uh, people are just not uh, grasping what is going on. And uh, first off, you're already condemned. You're already going there. God was graceful enough or gracious enough to send Jesus into the world to redeem you from what you're already heading for. And so, you know, this thing about, well, I wouldn't believe in a God that would do this or that or one thing or another uh, is crazy. That's just bad thinking. But um, he doesn't 
purposely send people to hell. He allows them to make their own beds, but he provides the opportunity for them to do so. This is actually confirmed in the coming words of this verse. They all, the words they all from the verse is speaking of those referred to in verses 10 and 11. <coughs> Paul says, according to this translation, that they may all be condemned. The word condemned here is incorrect, as is the term damned by the King James Version. The word is crino. Anybody know what crino means? Judge. That's exactly right. It simply means to judge. Condemnation may be implied here, but it is based on judgment on those, Paul's words, who did not believe the truth. Okay? There's a judgment. There's not an act of condemnation coming down first. There is judgment, and it may lead to condemnation. In the case of the Bema seat for believers, there is judgment, but there is no condemnation. So uh, in, when the King James Version says that you will be damned, or the New King James says you will be condemned, that's an incorrect translation. So take that and make a little margin error and say uh, one demerit for this translation. It simply means to judge. Condem um, uh, here is the key to the entire passage, belief. God does not ask the world to do great or fantastic things in order to be saved. He simply asks for faith. No matter how great or how fantastic our deeds are, they can never replace faith in what he has offered. That's it, okay? Uh, somebody was emailing me today about the idolatry in the Catholic Church, and it's just, it's unbelievable the things that they do. They, it, it permeates the thinking of the Catholics, and uh, it's something that is totally, totally, totally intended to keep people in bondage. If you can keep people praying to things that are not God and have acknowledged people that are dead as if they're alive and you can pray to them, you actually have them in bondage. They're in this box where the church dictates their every action. It takes care of their every action if you take care of it. You give your money, you give your allegiance to the church, and they will take care of you. But all of these things are intended to bring people into bondage, all right? Belief is what God wants from you. He doesn't want anything else. You know, if you're going to give things to the church or to missionaries or to whatever, that's just simply out of gratitude to the Lord. That is not because you need to earn anything before the Lord or before a church, okay? That should never be in your mind, ever. And if it is, your thinking is wrong. God already owns everything. Everything belongs to him. We're already on the way to condemnation. Anybody tell me a verse where it says that? There's a couple of them. John 3.18 is a good one, right? Uh, the reason why the Son of uh, Man was manifest is the... Oh, I'm thinking of 1 John 3.8. Anyway, um, uh, he who believes in the Son is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, okay? God sent Jesus into the world to get you out of the default position. What are you going to do to pay him for that? What is it that you think that he expects of you? Go and take the Sabbath and not work? Don't eat pork? He's already taken the action. It's already done. All you have to do is accept what is done. There's nothing that you can do after the deed to purchase the deed. All he asks you to do is believe by faith. So he gave us one thing. That's God it. Did. He gave us free will. That's right. And what's the one thing because of that that he does not possess? He doesn't possess our faith. Until we 
jump to one side or the other of the fence. Do you Absolutely. Or not? And it's like, yeah, it's just... Absolutely right. To love is an act of faith. It is. If you love God, then you have faith in God, but it has to be the proper God. Right. If you love the general God of Islam or of uh, Buddhism or something like that, you're not loving God because you're not loving what he has done in the giving of his son to take care of the sin problem. Sin is the problem. That was the problem from the very first moment of Adam and Eve's existence on this planet. I mean, I don't know. It could have been a week. It could have been 10 years. The Bible doesn't address when. All is the first thing that's recorded in the Bible with their interactions is that they sinned against God. Sin entered the world. And because of that, that is the problem. You can't love God unless you are loving God in the manner that he has proscribed, which is the giving of Jesus to bring you out of that. And as I said, it's already done. He's already sent Jesus to the cross. And therefore, there's nothing that you need to do except believe it. And if you can incorporate that into who you are as a person, then everything else in your life will be a-okay. Just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was willing to just walk out there and, you know, he's been stripped. He's out there in the cold and he says his prayers and he goes up to the gallows and gets hanged. Okay? Very sad, but at the same time, he knew where he was going. So uh, he already knew that God was a God that had sent his son to die for his sins. All he needed to do was just enter that next level of existence, which is, you know, our death, which is sleep waiting for him to call us to life again. <clears throat> if you can just accept that, then everything else should follow naturally with happiness in your life. Okay? Um, God does not ask us to do, ask the world to do great or fantastic things in order to be saved. He asks for faith. No matter how great or how fantastic our deeds are, they can never replace faith in what he has offered. In demonstrating faith, it then conveys the fact that God is righteous. In accepting this, we then should naturally desire to pursue him in this capacity. God is righteous. We have believed in what he has done, and therefore we should want to be righteous just like he is. We should want to be just just like he is. We should want to be loving. We were talking about that a little while ago before we got started, and it's very hard to be loving to people in the world today, and I'm talking about certain categories of people. It just is. It's a hard thing to do, but we can still pray for them even if we can't pray for their happiness and their prosperity. We can at least pray for them to have their eyes opened and to uh, hopefully be saved by Jesus, okay? But we're supposed to emulate the Lord that was willing to do what he did for us, okay? And so it's not bribing us to do it. It's not saying, okay, there's a statue over there and go talk to the statue. And, and uh, when you get done with that, then you can put some money in the thing. And uh, on Sunday, we'll put some holy water on your head and you'll be fine again. Okay. There's none of that nonsense. The relationship is already established when you believe in Jesus. Once again, we mentioned this one or two weeks ago, is that when you believe in Christ, you are now sealed in Christ. You are now in Christ. You're sealed, yes, with the Holy Spirit, but the term that Paul uses for your position is in Christ. Mm -hmm. It's done. You don't need to go over to that idol. You don't need to give money to that uh, ministry. You don't need to, whatever these people that are out there trying to influence your minds to do, you don't need to do. If you have believed, it's done. Now emulate the Lord who saved you, okay? Such a delight in that which is opposed to righteousness is incompatible with what is true, moral, and holy. Okay, so if we want to act in an unrighteous manner, then we're not acting in accord with God, 
who saved us, who is true and moral and holy. <clears throat> and when I say moral, that's why it's such an offense what is going on in the world today. Okay, in Ohio, they just last night passed the abortion bill, which makes it one of the uh, most extreme abortion rights uh, situations in the nation now. I think it's right up to the moment of birth you can kill that child. There's no need to worry. You know, I just had a granddaughter born three weeks early, and they cut my daughter open, and they pulled this child out to save both of their lives, and it was a real person there. Now, I saw the picture. It was just right after she was pulled out. Right? It's a real person. There's arms, there's toes, there's a nose, there's all of this, and they're saying it's okay to kill that. That's okay to these people. And what did the White House do? They literally exuberantly rejoiced today. They congratulated Ohio. They were having literally a happy party, a happy party over the fact that they can kill children, murder children. It's not just killing them, it's murdering them. And that is not the God of the Bible. And you are not emulating him when you allow things like that to happen. It is not moral. When I say moral, I'm talking about moral issues, things that no longer matter to these people. And every time they get one step, they go another. And every time they go another, they go another. You know, they started in Belgium five or six years ago with the euthanasia, only in the most extreme circumstances. That has gone from country to country to country. And by now, Belgium is, you know, euthanizing anybody that wants to, that has a head cold. Okay, I could have gone in there this week and I felt like it too. Oh man, it's just terrible when you're sick. It's, it, you know what, when you feel good again, it's just it's so nice to feel normal. I'm telling you, it just, wow. Anyway, um, but now Canada, and oh, it's only gonna be in the most extreme cases. We're not gonna be like them. Now the foot is in the door and all of a sudden you're homeless, you can kill yourself. You're a drug addict, you can kill yourself. You're unhappy, come on in. We'll take care of it for you. This is not moral. This is not what God would allow. I understand some people want to say we have a right to our own ending, but that is not dealing with normal people that are thinking clearly. They're having financial troubles. Your life is in a mess. The last thing you need to do is be told it's okay. You can come kill yourself. That'll take care of your problems. But that's what they're doing. This is what they're doing. That is not a moral issue. All right. But this is the type of thing that we should be doing. Uh, instead of lacking understanding what is right, they simply desire what is morally perverse. They believe the lie. This is what Paul is speaking of in the end times. And just look at the world around you. If they're believing the nonsense that they're believing right now in this world, okay, and even Christians, I mean, people that go to churches, and I say that Christian in a big umbrella, we have no idea if they're saved or not, but they're sitting in churches and they are applauding decisions like last night in Ohio. This is a great thing. We need to send more money to a plan and Planned Parenthood. You know, the, the GOP is trying to take money away from them and we need to keep them going. And they call that moral. They call that right. They call that just. No wonder the end times are coming upon the world. No wonder when they enter the tribulation period, they will be completely deluded. They will not seek the truth they, because they have believed the lie. And that is right where we're at in all of the world right now. We're more and more every day going there, okay? It is uh, willful rejection on their part, and it is what condemns them. 
It is completely unnecessary to find an active sending of delusion, delusion by God into the minds of man in order for him to be judged. Anybody that says that God is actively deluding anybody doesn't understand what's going on in the world around them right now. They're not seeing it. They're thinking, oh, everything is fine. You know, I got people very close to me, very close in my life that cannot see what is going on in the world around them. And you can say it, and it's like they, they think you're insane. They think you're crazy. How can you say that? Everything is fine. Ten years ago, if you had proposed pulling a child out of the womb at however many weeks a, a baby is born, the last week of that, and say it's okay to cut it into pieces and pull it out, they would have gone crazy. They would have said, you can't do that. Now it's just the most normal thing in the world to them. It's the great delusion. But this is where we're at. Uh, God provides the opportunity for those who willingly reject him to receive what they deserve. They reject him, they're going to get it. Okay? And that doesn't, that's no big change from the world in which we've lived all along. It's always been that way. There was a Bonnie and Clyde back in what, the 20s? They, you know, they were back then a little bit on the extreme, but God didn't force them to believe what they believed. They willingly did it. And there were people out there, I never knew it until I watched a documentary on them, but there were people all over the country that were like applauding them. And if they heard sure. they were in their town, they'd like bring them stuff. They were like national heroes. This has always been in the human heart. It's just that now it's acceptable in society. One society after another, just what can I do today that will be uh, more depraved than what I saw Sweden doing yesterday? And we're gonna do that. And then somebody comes along and says, well, we saw what, you know, Botswana did today and we want to beat that and so they just keep passing laws to out crazy the next law it, it, they, it just goes on and on so uh, it's just the human heart working and I was listening that they what? Well, you covered that already with Israel yeah. you said that they would keep pushing God and push so God just push him and he didn't he didn't respond we must be okay right well what did Jeremiah say I was listening to him on the way over here and just went and got something to eat, and which I wish I didn't now because it's right before class and I feel gross, but I never eat before class or before sermon, ever. But today I did because I haven't eaten all day and I just need to eat something. So, uh, But um, uh, Jeremiah, you know, the heart is desperately wicked, it says. Who can know it? All right. It's been that way all along. It's always been that way. It's just that society has kept that type of thing in check for the most part. That's no longer the case. They no longer care if wickedness is kept in check. If you don't believe that, last week's prophecy update. You gotta go into a, a store and you gotta look at a picture and decide what you want and then they bring it out of the back. My friend emailed me today, retired cop, and he said, that's the way it was in Russia. Back, you know, 25, 30 years ago, that was the most common thing in the world. You'd go in and you'd just say, I need, you know, shoes. And they'd bring out something, they'd say, well, what kind of shoes do you want? And they'd say, well, I want that. And they'd say, what size? And they'd go in back, yes, we have that. And then they'd hold the shoes, walk over to the cash register and say, okay, do you want these? Yes. They would hand them the shoes at the same time they handed him the money. Okay, because that's how it worked. And he said, these people were coming over and looking at all the stuff on aisles in America. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. And now we're them, we're turning into them. You want to get toilet paper? You go in and you look at a picture of toilet paper and you point at it and somebody comes out. This is Washington. Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. They no longer have stuff on the shelves in many stores. 
you go and you point at what you want and they walk in back and they pull out would you like Charmin would you you know no longer is there a societal check on anything it's just chaos run amok and we're we're going back we're not going forward in this world but this is what they want this is how they want it and this is the way it's going to be henceforth all right we really enjoy privileges in Florida and I'm very glad we have our governor and I hope he doesn't win the presidency so we can have him for four more years but when he's out somebody else is going to come in and it may be one of these lunatics that starts doing things like they're doing in California and we're going to have all kinds of problems okay the human heart is desperately wicked and that's where we're heading there's no check on it it's unrestrained why people want that I don't know but that's what they want life application what does God desire from you he simply asks for faith in what Christ has done that's it from that springboard we should naturally desire to be like him to follow him in righteousness and to be holy and just as he is holy and just if we fail to do these things it does not negate that we demonstrated faith that saved us it were to do so then we would not be saved by grace through faith our salvation would still be conditioned on what we do have faith and then be responsible enough to exercise that faith in right living I hope you understand that if you don't the uh, dilemma that people will throw at you it's a false dilemma but they will throw it at you and they'll say well you you have to have works to demonstrate your faith or you are not saved that's a very common argument. I've heard it many, 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 many times in various churches, in commentaries, in sermons. If you don't have works to just to base your or justify your faith, then you are not saved. Okay? And there's a problem with that, is it means that nobody would ever be saved. Right. Because there is no standard given in the Bible as to <clears throat> what works. The Bible does not tell you what works. It doesn't tell you ever what you must do in order to prove that you're saved. So you just ask them, okay, well, I have to do something. What works? And then they'll say, well, you have to do something. And there's never a, a definitive answer because it's not in Scripture. Okay? And the fact is, if the Bible said that there was something that would demonstrate your faith that you must do, then it wasn't by grace through faith. And therefore, you were never saved by grace through faith. You're saved by what you were doing whenever you're doing it and when you stop doing it then you lose your salvation everybody understand that it doesn't this is the day that tom alley is saved this is his life he's got another 872 years of life to go sorry buddy i know that probably disappoints you but this is the day that tom alley kicks the bucket to go to be with jesus right okay he was saved by faith at this point all right and then he has no works well no we'll say he has works every day undefined works we have no idea what his works are but they're undefined and then one day he gets tired and he stops doing his works and that goes on for a hundred years if he could lose his salvation it would be certainly when he's not doing any works but because he's not doing works and he loses his salvation right here that means that it was never of faith because faith is what saves if there's ever a point after your salvation that says you have to do something in order to prove you're saved or to keep being saved, then faith is excluded, completely excluded. And this is what Paul teaches. This is what the Bible says. And that's the way it is. 
You do not have to do anything after the moment you're saved if you believe by faith. The Bible Nothing. does have an example for that. No. Yeah. The thief. Yeah, well, you know, you could say, and they say, well, you died before Jesus. Well, actually, he didn't. Here. But, you know, they'll come up with all kinds of, I know, I've heard, though. I've heard people argue that was an except, exception. That ah. was this. I'm just telling you that people will use that. What I'm talking about is this. I, I've heard that a million know, times. Is that people will they'll they'll say that is a one-time deal. He couldn't have done anything. He was nailed to the cross. Jesus gave him a distance. They just their minds are so confused that they don't know that. So you just have to simply show them. Anywhere along this line, if you can lose your salvation by not doing works, then it was never a faith. Faith has to be from beginning to end. It has to be. Mm -hmm. And I understand the thing about the person on the cross, but I don't use it simply because people are already geared against it. Well, and so right, it, it's not going to do any good to argue that one. But their argument is not in the Bible. Well, I understand it's, it's not. Like, okay, I, well, I just said that. It. It's not in there. Right, right, right. It is in the Bible that your salvation from beginning to end is of faith. Right. And then in the very chapter where uh, James defines works, leading to justification, he uses three examples, okay, right? He uses three examples. Uh, I can tell you two of them right offhand. Maybe it's two examples. He uses Abraham was justified by his works when? Circumcision. No, when he offered Isaac on the altar. That's James 2, okay? Let me take you to James 2, just so you can see my point here. Right. All right, James chapter 2. He's, and the other one is Rahab the harlot. I know those two, and there might be one more. I'm just a little foggy here today. I apologize, but we'll go to James 2. He gives these two examples, if nothing else, and there may be a third. He says, um, uh, eh, where are we? Okay. Oh, I'm in reading three. It would help if I, okay, Abraham. He said, um, uh, Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? Uh, and by works, faith was made perfect, okay? And then he cites scripture, okay? And, oh, yeah, so there's two examples, not three. Likewise was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she did what? Uh, hit the, uh, spies. Received the spies, that's correct. Okay, so you have Abraham was justified by offering his son Isaac, and Rahab was justified by receiving the spies. Okay, now, that is the 54th book of the Bible. What is the 53rd book of the Bible? Begins with H and ends with Hebrews. Hebrews. Anybody? Yeah, Hebrews, that's right. Okay, so if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Hall of Fame of Faith, and you go down to where it speaks of Abraham, it says, here it is, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So it was an act of faith. It wasn't a work. It was an act of faith. Now, Hebrews comes before James for a theological reason. There's a reason why the Lord put them there. But maybe, maybe the guy that did Hebrews was confused. And so we'll go ahead and we'll just go down a little bit and we'll uh, see if we can find. Oh, here it is. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled seven days. By faith. The harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she, anybody, received the spies with peace. So the very deeds that James applies as works, he says, are works of faith. Faith, faith from beginning 
to end. If they did not do those deeds, they would still have had faith. But their deeds were deeds of faith, okay? In other words, if you do something and it's not in faith, you're not going to get rewarded for it. If you do something and it is in faith, then it will be recognized as such. But it has nothing to do with this, your salvation. Nothing. Remember always that Hebrews comes before James and Hebrews pre uh, shuts up any talk of works justifying you. And I'm talking about justification for salvation. All right. What James is saying is that works are accepted when they are works of faith. Everybody got that? Okay. That is what the Bible says. And you know what would solve all these problems? If people would read their Bible. And understood the Bema Seat. Yeah, well, that's because right. But that's... people don't get the Bema Seat. They do not get the Bema Seat. And you know, the funny thing is, it's right there. And you can tell them. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right. Just go read them, and that will give you all the information you need to know about your salvation and your judgment. And people, they can't even tell you where it is the next day. They don't stop and read the Bible. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. It's right there, and it tells you that you will be saved yet as by fire. Tested by fire. You te well, no, you will be, here, let me read it to you so that we make sure we got it right. It says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says there, and we're going to go to verse 9, and it says, uh, let's see here, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the foundation. Now, if anyone builds, works on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, meaning the day of judgment, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work. He just tells you that work explains your working, your your wood, hay, stubble, or stones, and okay, whatever. It says, um, uh, will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, like this, this is a work of Abraham uh, and his son Isaac, or Rahab receiving the spies, um, uh, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You will be judged. You may be singed. That's what fire does. You may come out smelling smoky, but you will be saved. Okay? What you do now counts forever as far as the Bema Seat of Christ. Okay, but it does not count forever in condemnation. It only counts forever in salvation. Okay, so you want to make sure you get that right. You've got these little things, they're called boxes. Everything fits into a box. You don't want to get the boxes, you know, going over each other or sliding into each other. Each piece of theology has its own box. And one of the boxes is salvation, and one of the boxes is rewards based on salvation. Rewards are never based on condemnation, which is your default setting. If you're being condemned, you may get 
less condemned, not less condemned, but uh, uh, be beaten with less blows or whatever Jesus says, but you're going to be condemned, okay? Rewards only go towards people that are saved, okay? And then 2 Corinthians 5, we'll take you there just because we're, we're there. You will be given a judgment and your life in Christ will be judged. That's all he's saying to you, okay? Uh, take it again to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to start again with verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's what we're doing. We want to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear, he's speaking to believers in this, believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body. That means after salvation, what is done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So you're Works can be bad. He admits that right there in 2 Corinthians 5. Your works can be bad. That means you'll get no reward. They will be a part of the fiery burning thing that happens in 1 Corinthians 3. All right? They can be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust that are well known in your consciences. Okay? Got it. Ephesians 2, okay. 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 9. okay, yeah, exactly, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That takes you right back to the beginning of the process. Well, <laughs> right, 2, 8, 9. It says here, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God wants you to walk in good works. He wants you to do that. If you don't, if you have bad works, which you can do, then you will receive your judgment for that. If you have good and bad mix, mixed together, like most people do, then the bad will be burned away, the good will be purified, okay? That's the judgment seat of Christ. I didn't write those words. That's what it says, and people should just take time and learn it. And if they would read this book, they wouldn't have lives that are full of misery, okay? This is where the doctrine comes from. This is where the heart for Jesus comes from. This is where salvation comes from, the message, okay? Now, obviously, it can be transmitted apart from the Bible, but if it's a, the message that comes from the Bible, then it is this word, okay? This is the source of all of what we're talking about. So, this is what we need in our lives is to... to responsibly handle our lives after salvation and not worry about people that tell you that you can lose your salvation. You cannot. And once again, I appreciate people that bring in the, the guy on the cross, right. but I've had so many people argue against that I never use it but, for that but, reason. But that just explains what happened to him. Well, he I understand. believed. That's right. And then he died. So he, he, he built nothing. That's he right. He just had his salvation. He's like, he's... Yeah. he's well, you right. could use, so, you could, and you can use the same argument and say, I know a person that was saved in the morning, and he died that afternoon. Right. He didn't have time to do anything. Right. You can use that example. You can say, I knew a person that, you know, I'll tell you, before I say this, I'll, I'll qualify something is coming after it, mm -hmm. but I have uh, actually heard of people that were converted in the hospital and died within hours of being converted. Mm -hmm. Here's an answer to that, just like the guy on the cross, Okay. I heard a Baptist minister one time who was on one of those um, uh, where they interview theologians and pastors like History Channel, one of those stupid things. And this guy said, I do not accept deathbed conversions. I do not believe that a person that has uh, acted wickedly his whole life can be saved. And I thought, that guy 
does not understand grace. No. He doesn't have a clue about what he's supposed to have been doing in the pulpit all of those years. He doesn't understand grace at all. Guess who's judgmental? Yeah, it just. Um, but that is what people will use. So that. they'll take your argument and they'll just say, "Here's why but, it's not." But that's what he believes. It's not what the Bible says. Well, I understand says. that. So it's like, okay, that. Means I, I completely right. understand that. But that is the argument that you will come up with mm -hmm. people, right, and right. unless you're willing to give them a logical argument like this, you're not convincing them of anything. Right. If he and doesn't believe will. in a deathbed conversion, then he just doesn't understand grace. Right. He has no concept of what the grace of God means. None. And you know what, saying that, the person, you might never get them to change their mind, but the person sitting next to you who hears that goes like, oh, gosh, I can't lose my salvation. Well, absolutely. Like, you know, and then this burden is taken off of them that they've been under their whole life. Their whole I can't tell you how many people I have had email me over the years and say, when I understood what God's grace mean, meant, my right. life completely changed. Right. It was just like having a weight. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I grew up in a Baptist Church. And all I ever heard was, and they'd tell you all the things that happened to him. And one day I met grace. I met the Lord of grace. And I had that weight taken off of me. And I've heard this so many times in my life because of bad theology out of crummy pastors and theologians that don't know what they're talking about. They do not understand the nature of God. If you don't first understand the nature of God, then you can never properly preach on God's grace, his love, his judgment, because judgment is a part of God's attributes. He must judge sin. And if you don't understand the nature of God, you will never get it right about how he responds to people's actions. Ever. You will never get it. So that's why I started with Genesis 1 verse 1 on the beach, and I never even brought up the Bible outside of that one verse. And I talked about how you can know who God is, what the God of the Bible must be like, and if what is presented right here matches some holy book on this planet, then that's probably the God you should be pursuing. And you can know it's not the God of Islam. You can know it's not the God of Buddhism. You can exclude all of these based on this, this, or this, and you come up with only one possibility. Here we are, and we're starting here today, and we're gonna go through this book as long as I'm alive, okay? That's why I did that, because if you don't understand the nature of God, you cannot understand his attributes. Understand his nature, what he must be like, apart from the Bible, and then you seek out where that God has revealed himself, because he must have. He's so wonderful that he's not gonna keep it a secret from anybody. You look at the, the marvelous creation that he has given us. You know, I love to watch these, these uh, uh, is Genesis history and uh, answers in Genesis things because they take you back to creation and they show you what God has done. And he's speaking to you through the creation, through the bumblebee and through the, uh, the dolphin. He's speaking to you through all of these animals and all of these flowers. And, you know, I went out this morning, it's 3.30 in the morning, I take out couple of my dogs every morning before, while my coffee is heating up. And this morning, the, the uh, uh, night blooming jasmine was blooming and it was so wonderful. I took this big deep breath, almost passed out and I said, thank you, Lord. It is so, so wonderful to smell the night blooming jasmine. It is so unbelievable. When the sun comes up, you couldn't, you could walk up to that thing and sniff as hard as you want it and you won't get one whiff out of it. And another thing about it is that it doesn't smell right next to it. You're like, if, if you didn't know that that was a night blooming jasmine, you wouldn't know that it was blooming. You have to walk like 30 feet away and the wind is kind of taking it over. All of a sudden the smell comes. It is 
unbelievable. God is speaking to us through the night blooming jasmine. He's saying, this is a part of my wisdom and my care for the people of the world. I'm doing this for you. People don't even bother with that anymore. They've got their faces so deep into cell phones nowadays that they don't look around and say, gee, this, the moon is so beautiful. It's just so wonderful. He's revealing himself to us in nature. Well, if he's doing that in nature, I guarantee you that he has done it somewhere in writing. In some manner, he got that to us. Now, how did he do it? The Bible tells us. It accurately reveals the God that we can know apart from the Bible. And therefore, this is God's word. We can know that. We can absolutely know it. Now pick up this word and read it and appreciate it while thinking about the night blooming jasmine or while thinking about where the moon is on a particular phase during the night, okay? Have you ever noticed that when the moon is full, it comes up? at sunset. It always does that. I mean, it's not like one day the moon is full and, you know, it has to be over here before it's, it comes up and it starts really, really deep red sometimes. And it like takes your breath away and it goes up a little and it starts getting orange and then it gets bright white or whatever you would call it. Everything works. Everything works because God has said it that way. Ah, I, why can't people get this? Um, Life application, what does God desire from you? Uh, I read that, didn't I? Um, wait a minute, did I? I don't know. Um, our salvation would be conditioned on what we do. Yes, I did. Okay, 213. <laughs> but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That's very close. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, sanctification is one of those things that you will always think about in the sense that I am being sanctified, right? When you come to Christ, you're you're just a guy. You're just a girl. And then you meet Christ and you're still kind of fumbling through your life. And eventually you learn what God wants you to do and you start acting a little more mature in Christ and you start doing things you weren't doing when you first came to Christ. That's what we think of when we think of sanctification. And that is true. We are going through a process of sanctification, but what Paul just said here is not that process. I'll read it again and think about what it says. Um, uh, where is it? Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. He chose you for salvation through sanctification. You believed you were sanctified that moment. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit and you were saved. That's the order that Paul is giving. That happens all at once, okay? You believe and you're saved and you're sealed and everything all at once. But when it says that you are sanctified, and Paul does this at least four or five, maybe 15 times, I have no idea. But when he says that you are sanctified, it means you are sanctified. God has completely and perfectly accepted you in Christ. Everybody got that? It's not a process. It is an instantaneous transformation of you. You are no longer unsanctified. You are now holy. Everybody got that? I just want to make sure you do. What he's speaking about there is immediate sanctification. You are sanctified and you are saved. If you're sanctified, even in your state of unholiness, and I'm talking about your state, 
your physical state and you're the person that's still screwing up every day even though you became a Christian. You can't stop drinking right now. You're still smoking. You're doing whatever you're doing. You're not holy in the sense that you were perfect before God in yourselves. But in his economy, you are sanctified. If he has done that, then that means you're saved and that means you are eternally saved. In Christ. In Christ. You are in Christ. So think of that. Anyway, here we have Paul after his detailed discourse on end times events, <clears throat> going back to a train of thought from the beginning of the epistle and then expanding on it. In verse 1 3, he said, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. In the same type of fashion, being bound to giving thanks, he begins with, but we. There is an emphasis on the word we, which is given to contrast Paul and his associates with those mentioned in verses 10 through 12. The contrast, though, is actually made between those mentioned and the Thessalonians who, along with Paul and his companions, are set apart from those who are lost, okay? Some little kid poking his head you know, in here. He was walking by. He, was he had to know. Him. He had to know. This is seen at the end of the clause. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, okay? Paul has written of those who would be lost and why they would be lost. He would only do this as one who was setting himself apart from that group, okay? That's the only reason why he'd do something like that. His words here unite the Thessalonian believers into that same setting apart. They all are believers in Jesus, and they're all set apart, okay? This is first evidenced by the words, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Paul's writing to these people. He knows that they're saved, and he's saying that you are beloved of the Lord. First, they are brethren. Secondly, they are beloved by the Lord. The word beloved is in the perfect tense, showing its completed nature. They have been beloved by the Lord, and they are beloved of the Lord. When you see something, a perfect participle, what that means is that uh, it's something that happened previously and still continues. It's kind of hard to explain, but we do it in English quite often. We don't know we do it. Um, let me think of an example. Um, you, uh, uh, I'm talking to you, and you're saved. And I say, uh, you had been saved uh, for this day. Okay. In other words, today is here, but this happened before, but it had a bearing on right now. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's a perfect participle. It's something that is absolutely complete, and it's something that uh, has a bearing on the now and the future. It's something, just think of... Uh, I was born to do this. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of saying it, I think. I was born to do this. Okay. It's something that happened, but yes, I, that's probably a good example. Um this is essentially the same phrase that he used of them in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, where he used the word God instead of Lord. Thus, one can logically make the connection that in Paul's mind, Jesus is the Lord God. Okay, no doubt about it. Um, let's see here. What can we say about that? Um, I got a question, actually two people questioned about the Trinity today. And... Uh, one of them was somebody sent somebody else something about uh, the um, 
one we did just a couple weeks ago on the rapture and the timing of the end times events and the revealing of the Antichrist and all that. And the person asked a question about, you know, well, does he believe that Jesus is God? And what does it mean is God, um, if he's God, then is he a completely separate person from the God, the Father? And, blah, and you know what? You can spend all day trying to talk to somebody about the Trinity. And that's why I'm so glad my friend Mike harped on me for years. You need to do a series on doctrine. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to stick just with the Bible. And he's like, you need to do a series on doctrine. And I did the series on doctrine finally. And now whenever somebody asks me about the Trinity, I don't even bother anymore. I just send them the link and I say, here's my answer. If you want to know what I believe about the Trinity, here it is. Okay. If you want to know what I believe about the deity of Jesus Christ, I got it on there. The deity of the Holy Spirit, I got one on that. The humanity of Christ, I've got one on that. I did what? There are 10 or 12, something like that. Okay. And they're all core points of doctrine. And if you want to know why I believe what I believe, and I send them that link. And I sometimes they ask, do you have it in written form? Yeah, I'll send that right along. No problem. I'm so glad he did that because it takes care of just all kinds of time arguing with people. All right. If you want to disagree with me, that's your choice. But this is what I put out. And so that's my presentation. It just makes it so easy. And I have to tell you, I actually go back from time to time and will watch one of those sermons or at least a part of it to make sure that what I'm thinking right now is correct. Because that kind of stuff doesn't just stick around in your head. It's complicated. It has to be thought through. It takes many, many hours to put forward something of a core doctrine that is logical, that is proper, and that matches the Bible. When I say proper is that, you know, you can have one little thought that'll take you off on a wrong tangent. So you have to be very careful about uh, core doctrine issues. But all of those sermons are there in writing and on YouTube. And I recommend if you have a question or somebody comes to you about the Trinity, if you trust me enough, send them the link to that and say, this guy has it. If you don't trust me, go and find another Trinity sermon and send that one on, okay? But be careful because people can make the smallest little error and all of a sudden you're off on heresy highway. Mm -hmm. Be very careful. Um, anyway, uh, the second question on the Trinity uh, was um, the Greek, I think it's the Greek Orthodox. I don't think it was Russian Orthodox, but the Greek Orthodox says that only the Father is eternal in the sense that the Son and the Spirit issue from him. In other words, God the Father is the, uh, they have a term, auto something. He, he's the very beginning and the other two are dependent on him. Is anybody agree with that or disagree with that and why? Agree. Why do you disagree with that? 10, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Okay, that's a very good one. He also says that, um, that uh, I am and everybody knew what he was talking about. If he is the I am of Genesis 3.14, then I was, Exodus. I am, I ever shall be. Yeah. Exodus. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you. Exodus 3.14. Thank you. Um, Exodus and then Revelation. But not only that, if you just think it through, even without Scripture, even without Scripture, if you just think through, you say there's a trinity and you don't have anything in Scripture that you want to argue with somebody. You say, is the Father God? Well, yes. Is the Son God? Well, yes. The Bible says that. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. If they are God, that means by default, they are. Right. It's not that they are now or they have become. They are, just as it said in Exodus 3. 
I am who I am. That's speaking of God the Father. It's speaking of God the Son. It's speaking of God the Holy Spirit. They must be. If they are God, then they must be. It's not that one of them is contingent on another, okay? They are God. So They are a necessary being. They are a ne- each. God is a necessary being, and each member of the Godhead is necessary within the Godhead. If the Son isn't necessary, then there would be no Son. And if the Spirit isn't necessary, there would be no Spirit. But the Bible says that the Spirit is God, and the Bible says that Jesus is God. Therefore, they are one. They are necessary, and they must be. Now, I don't want to get any farther than that without getting into some thing that I shouldn't have said, but just think it through. Just think it through, and then you can use Scripture to defend what you have thought through. All of them are independent of each other according to Scripture, and yet all of them are one according to Scripture. Okay, that doesn't mean you have to understand it. It simply means that that's what Bible teaches. Okay. The if, last verse of Second <coughs> Corinthians chapter thirteen. Yeah, that's a good one. Go ahead. Yeah. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, he's identifying all three members of the Godhead in one. All right. Each has its own role and purpose within the Godhead, but each is God. Okay. Anyway, um, so the deity of Jesus Christ. It says here, um, uh, thus one can logically make the connection that in Paul's mind, Jesus is the Lord God. Okay, It is the Lord who is God that Paul continues his thoughts with. He states, because God from the beginning chose you. This is the only time in the New Testament that the Greek word translated as chose is used concerning God's election. It is used in the Greek Old Testament, such as in Deuteronomy 26 verse 18, which is surely what is on Paul's mind concerning Israel having been chosen as the Lord's peculiar people. As this is not the ordinary word when speaking of election, implying his eternal selection, it means that he is taken for himself. He has adopted them according to his eternal purpose. Just as he took Israel for himself, he has taken those of the church for himself. Okay? He has adopted them as his own. There is a group of people who would come to him by faith in Christ, and they are now his. They are adopted as sons of God. Okay? This was his eternal selection, and it was, as Paul says, from the beginning. That's a, uh, what is it? Uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer album, wasn't it? From the, uh, in the beginning. In the beginning. Oh, okay, that's right. In the beginning. That's right. Okay. Um, uh, the words here uh, mean from eternity. From the beginning from eternity. God knew before he created what would come to pass and who would make certain choices, and he elected those for salvation. He knew the choices they would make. He did not pre-select them and then make them make the choice, which is what Calvinism would teach, that God selected this person, he, apart from their free will, and said, you will be saved, you will not be saved, you are going to hell, you are going to heaven, before they ever had an opportunity and before he even sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus becomes an afterthought in the redemptive process. It's actually not necessary. God could have gone around the cross if you logically think it through by the way that they teach that. No, he knew that these people, whoever they are and whatever makes us do what we do, he knew that we would do it, that we would say, I understand Jesus went to the cross for me. 
and I accept that. God knew that that would happen, and therefore he elected us. He chose us based on what he knew we would choose. So in his mind, he already knows it. In our lives, it may not have happened yet, okay? I hope you understand that because people say, well, that's a contradiction. If God knows that you're going to do something, then he must have forced you to do it. No. Not at all. That, that's complete different boxes, and they're taking two boxes, and they're shoving them together. It doesn't work that way, okay? I had the choice. I made it. God knew that I would make the choice. It, he didn't force me to do it, okay? So you got to be careful with people like that because they love to pull fast ones and try to get you to think unclearly about what should be very clear. And they, they're very good manipulators of this, especially people in Calvinist circles. They just are, they, they're so trained into their theology that they cannot accept that a person has free will. But they do have free will to sin. You have free will all day long to sin. You have free will to do anything on this planet except believe in God. As nutty as that sounds, that's what they believe. Free will is excluded only in salvation. So uh, it's a goofy way of looking at the world, but there are people that just cling to that. So anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, he elected those for salvation. God chose to save certain people in a certain way, and he did it before anything was created. Okay? Um, I will save, and this is how that salvation will occur. Okay? God sets forth the plan. He puts it in motion. He says, someday sin has entered the world. Someday I'm going to send Jesus to the cross. Anybody who believes that, that person will be saved. Okay? Now, once again, God knows everything. He knows every single thing. There's no need for him to think things through. He already knows it. But we don't. We are living within the stream of time, and we have to figure these things out. So, this is what Paul is telling us here. Uh, Paul then goes on to explain that process, which is first through sanctification by the Spirit. The words here actually read in the Greek, in sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctification is the mode of salvation. Christ did the work, and our faith in that, we are sanctified, thus bringing about our salvation. Once again, it all happens at once. God doesn't work that way. You know, it, it's displayed in time because this is what happens, how our minds think. But when I believe, I'm sanctified, I'm saved. It all happens at once. God knew it would happen. It's based on my faith. It's done. Okay? But Paul is giving us the process so we can understand. Just like he saved Israel, he sanctified Israel. They've been screwing up now for 3,500 years, and yet they're still his people. Okay? Someday they are going to be called back to him through faith in Christ. That's all right there. It's all seen right there. By the way, it's also seen in all of the sermons that we're going through right now. We just got up last week to uh, Ehud, Christ paying the penalty for our sins. You know, the, the weight of sin on us is destroyed by the knife in the gut. We saw that last week. Very exciting. And then this week, we've got Deborah coming up. Uh, we got two-part sermon on Deborah. And what I want you to do this week, and I'll try to remember to say this, is it. I want you to try to figure out, don't, you don't have to figure out all the typology of what's going on. And I'll tell you this, the second sermon, Deborah, uh, part two, it's really complicated. If you don't get it, that's fine. As long as you understand who Deborah is picturing, everything else will fall in place, okay? You'll, you'll, you'll understand enough to say, I get that. Because everything is following a pattern. And I told you this, by the time we get up to Judges 6, we're going to be all the way through redemptive history. We just started with Christ, or before that, but we... Christ is paying the penalty for our sins last week. 
What comes after? What comes after? What comes after? What comes after? I'm waiting for next week because I can't wait to find out. I mean, every single week it has just been this beautiful progression of what's going on right here, right in the pages of the Bible. It's just unfolding, right? And this week, when I typed this week's sermon on Monday, oh, thank you. Listen to this. I was so sick Monday, I thought, there's no way I'm going to get this sermon because it's really complicated and you have to think, what is the Lord telling us? I think it was, uh, let me tell you how many verses it was. We got time. This is so exciting. Thank you, Jesus. Um, uh, let's see here. It's uh, Judges chapter 6. I'm still in that. And this is like the fourth or fifth sermon out of Judges 6. But um, keep going back this way, Charlie. Um, hang on, what, Judges 7, Judges 6. And I did, um, uh, I, he's told to do this. Gideon perceived he was the angel of the Lord. Okay, so um, uh, I'll read this to you. Um, verse 25 through 32. That's what I typed this week. Or 30. Yeah, 32. Okay, I'll read it. Very simple. Now it came to pass in the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image, which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all the people who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore on that day he called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Great, exciting stuff. What is that telling us? Normally, I'd read it, and then what I'd do is I'd have to put it all side by side, and I'll sit there for maybe one or two hours, and what is this telling us? How does this fit in? Okay, and it's complicated. It takes a lot of effort. By the time I got done with the first verse, I knew what was coming. That's how excited I was because I was so sick and I was so thankful to the Lord the rest of the day. Still took 10 hours to type the sermon, but it wasn't that brutal mentally challenged. It was, it was just so, thank you, Lord. He knew that I would be sick that Monday and he gave me the perfect passage for it. I'm going to tell you what, it's very exciting. I hope the rapture happens first, but if it doesn't, very exciting. Wow. It's just amazing what is in God's word because I didn't have a clue. And next week, same thing. I have no idea what's coming. It's the one with the fleece. Oh, yeah, yeah, wet. Get wets on, but the fleece doesn't. Then he says, well, what about... I can't wait to find out what that is telling us. I have my hair standing up. I have no idea. Can't wait. I almost thought, I because I had time to do the verses. I thought, I'll just do all the verses. And I thought, there's no way, because I know what's coming here. And if I add that on, it's not going to have the same effect. It's not, I need to keep these separate. And so I did separate them, but I can't wait to do the, the fleece next week. I just, who knows what the Lord has in there for us. We got to finish because I'm running out of time here. Um, so 
not the ordinary word. Let's hear God chose to save certain people. I read that. Sanctification is the mode. The Spirit of God will sanctify those who are to be saved. You have faith. He sanctifies you. This is necessary because being saved implies that one has fallen first. One must be saved from something and to something. Okay? You're being saved. From, when it says, you know, you witness to somebody and you, you need to be saved, it's like, saved from what? You don't understand. You're not going to without being saved from. And they need to understand that. You're already condemned. People need to understand that, but they, they're not thinking that way. Saved? What does it mean? Why, why do you have to be saved? Okay? One must be saved from something in order to be saved to something. Man has fallen. He's separated from God. Man must be sanctified in order to be reconciled to God. This is the work of the Spirit, but it is based on belief in the truth. As I said, people have faith all the time. All over the world, people have faith. It's just misdirected faith. If you have misdirected faith, you can't be saved. You have to have faith in what is true. That's why it's so important again. Once again, what is God like? And then search for the document that tells you what God is like, and it corresponds to what you know about him. If you do that, you will come up with this book and nothing else. Just like you go out into creation and you say, what must God be like if he created a squirrel? And what must God be like because he created children that do those things? What good must God be like because of the great pine tree and because of the turtle? And you can say, I know that God must be something like this. And you go into some of the religious texts of the world and that God isn't anything at all like what you see there. We can throw them right out the window because God created those things. His, his nature is reflected in those things, okay? If you know that, you can get rid of a lot of stuff without even worrying about it. It doesn't reflect that God. I don't need to, but this does. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. Day unto night utters knowledge, and he is reflected in that. So creation does match the Bible. What else? And do that, and you will be secure in your belief that this is the word of God. Okay. 19th Psalm. 19th Psalm, absolutely. <laughs> Tells you right there. Isaiah does it. Job does it. James, to some extent, does it. Paul speaks about it in Romans 1. It reflects the nature of God based on nature. You know that at least it's not wrong in that. Maybe it's wrong in something else. Seek it out. Find it out. Okay. Um, uh, from something to something. This is the work of the Spirit, and it is based on belief in the truth. Belief in the truth is man's part in this equation. It is here contrasted with those who believe the lie of verse 11 and did not believe the truth of verse 12. Of this same chapter, there those who did not believe were then said to be condemned. If you don't believe, if you believe the lie, you're condemned, okay? Jesus said it, John 3, 18. If you're condemned, then you need to get that fixed from two, okay? Here, those who believe are said to be saved. In both, man is involved in the process. That's known as synergism. That means working together. Syn and jism, uh, er, 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 erg is the word, work. So work together. Synergism, or uh, you think of, you know, ergonomics. How do I make my body comfortable while I'm working? Erg, work. Okay, so working together, sin and erg, synergism. 
Whereas Calvinism says it's totally monergism. God alone makes those choices. You have no choice in it. Well, Paul's words right here show us that it is working together. Okay. God elected those who would believe. He elected them to be sanctified by the spirit and he elected them to be saved. God chose the means of salvation and he laid it out for those who would hear and heed. God has done that for us. We need to respond accordingly. Um, <coughs> condemnation already exists, John 3, 18, but it is also a choice when one hears and rejects the truth. One willingly stays in the default position of condemnation, or let me make a correction here. One willingly stays in the default position of condemnation, or that person willingly chooses the path of salvation and is saved. Synergism. We are working together. God has laid out the plan. He says, now do your part. Okay. It is true. I'm sorry. The doctrine of monergism is not at all evident in this process. It is true that the choice of how salvation would come about is solely up to God. But the choice allows man to freely choose that how. God has laid it out. He says, there is no other way to be saved than what I have put forth here. That's God's choice. It is his prerogative. He has made the path available, something he did not need to do. He took all of the expense upon himself. And he says, if you will follow this path, you will be saved. And he doesn't make it hard. As a matter of fact, it's the simplest thing in the world, except that pride steps in. And then all of a sudden it begins, becomes the most difficult thing that man could ever do is to put himself aside and say, I accept what God has done because I'm unworthy of it. I accept it. But uh, how the salvation would come about is solely up to God, but the choice allows man to freely choose that how. It also allows him to willingly decline the same if it is presented to him. God leaves that up to us. Life application, salvation is a gift. It is not forced upon a person, but it must willingly be accepted. The person and work of Jesus Christ is that gift, and it is offered to you to accept or reject. Be wise, be discerning, choose life. Okay, very wonderful. Got it done just in time. We made it through a whole hour and a half, so uh, Lee, his hour and a half getting to his cell phone paid off. Good there job. Go. Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to revel in who you are. Thank you for the cross of Jesus that was such a burden, such an unbelievable burden that he took upon himself for us. And to this day, I do not understand why. I understand that you did it. I believe it. I accept it completely. And I think probably pretty much everybody here has accepted it as well. But I don't know anybody that could ever understand why? When we look at the world around us and see what human beings are capable of, and yet you still loved us enough to do it. Thank you. Thank you for that. And all we can do is praise you forever and ever and ever for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his magnificent name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Remember that when we uh, say goodbye, wave because the people online get a kick out of this. All right, here we go. Let's see. I'm going to put that on break. There we go.